We have to take our Bibles and let's turn to Psalm 49. On, on that note and with the testimony that Jarrett just shared, Psalm 49 is where we are. We have a wonderful portion of God's Word before us this evening. And as you're turning there, just a quick kind of an announcement. Next week, we will meet here at 7 o'clock. Uh, but it'll be it'll be different. We're not going to do kind of the normal format that we do here. Uh, we'll take a break from the Psalms. We'll have kind of a time of open sharing, of of open testimony, of Thanksgiving. Uh, the day before Thanksgiving, that'd be appropriate to to meet here and reflect together on. Let, let me just tell you why I'm thankful, and we can all share. Why are we thankful? What has God done in your life? So maybe maybe be thinking about that this week and. Think about maybe one or two ways that you might be willing to share, and uh, we'll have a little bit of singing and a little prayer time and then a brief time in the Word as well. Just a, a great night of, of giving thanks to the Lord publicly and corporately as a, as a family of believers to our God. But Psalm 49 this evening, God's perspective on life, on death, on wealth, and redemption. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. We come now to the preaching of your word, O Lord. And we pray that you would help me and enable me to preach the word, that you'd help me to do it clearly and faithfully and biblically. Holy Spirit, our dependence and our confidence and our Our plea is to you that you would take the word of God and that you would minister that word deep in our hearts, in our lives, that you would help us to think rightly, that you would help us to live rightly, that we would give rightly, that we would have accurate theology. And so we pray that all that is done this evening would maximize and increase the great glory of our great God in this place. May Jesus be praised in his name. We pray, amen. The question could often be asked, I think, to all of us, how do we make sense of life? How do we make sense of life? Or maybe you could ask the question, what is the main point of life? What is the main goal of life? Because The Bible teaches a couple of very foundational truths all throughout the Bible. Death is sure. Death is sure. Eternity is approaching. Your money is fleeting. Or as Jarrett read from Proverbs 23, your money will take wings and soon fly away from you. And redemption is very costly. Redemption is very costly. So what is life all about? Okay, death is sure, life is short, eternity is approaching, money is fleeting, the possessions, the things we have are soon gone. What is life all about? Because all of life's pursuits, if that's really the end goal, it's just getting more, well, that will lead to frustration. It will lead to frustration, power, prestige, pleasure, riches, whatever a man or a woman may try to accrue in his life, nothing can fill the void in man's life but God, but God, only God 
exclusively God, none but God. When life is viewed this way, that God is the only one worth living for, if he's the only one that gives true meaning to life, then your life, my life, becomes joyful and meaningful and satisfying and thrilling in the ultimate sense. And you know what? That's the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me summarize Ecclesiastes by way of introduction for you. Solomon, the world's wisest man before Jesus came, Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes to show the feudal emptiness in seeking to find any fulfillment or meaning in a life lived without God. You can't find meaning in a life lived without God. It's all vanity, Solomon said. It's it's meaningless. That's the key word of Ecclesiastes 37 times. Vanity, vanity. It's all vanity. And so beginning in chapter 1, Solomon just sort of records the vanity of life without God at the center. And he talks about wisdom and laughter and hedonism and wine and partying and works and women and pleasure and wealth. That's all chapter two. And, and then he talks about the brevity of life and the universality of death. I mean, everything that you could ever pursue is meaningless if God is not at the center of it all. Well, then you come to chapter 3, and Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes that time is short, and eternity is coming, and death is sure. You better make sure that God is the center of everything. And then in chapters 4 and 5, Solomon acknowledges that, man, there are a lot of difficulties in life. A lot of difficulties. I mean, there's oppression, there's rivalry, there's covetousness, there's power, uh, power struggles, there's external religiosity, disappointments are everywhere. Life is vanity without God at the center. Without God at the center. Again, a life lived without God is meaningless. It's without purpose. It's without meaning. It's like the person hasn't even begun to live yet. But, but when God is known and loved and worshiped and adored and magnified, the meaning of life is understood. And that's how the end of Ecclesiastes reads. The very last two verses of the book, the conclusion, when all has been heard, is to fear God and keep his commandments because it applies to every person. God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is evil or good. That's the whole point of life. Fear God and keep his commands. You know, those questions of life, death, eternity, fulfillment, purpose, enjoyment, all the questions that Ecclesiastes raises, and to be sure, Job raises a lot of them as well, are found right here in Psalm 49. What I want to do is I want to begin with a contrast, a contrast. Ponder the good life. 
Here's the good life. The good life comes to the man or woman who fears God. He he lives for eternity and he has God as his redeemer shepherd. That's the good life. It doesn't matter how much money he makes. It doesn't matter what kind of status he has in this world. The good life is fearing God, living for eternity, and having God as your redeemer shepherd. But, but, the contrast is the tragic life, the wasted life. It's the man or woman who lives for himself, consumed with the world, trying to live without God at the center. And that person, according to our psalm tonight, teaches that that person will have not God as their shepherd, death as their shepherd. What a tragic, tragic life. And so the question is, which will you choose? Will you choose the good life or will you choose the tragic life? That's what the psalm presents. And according to verse four of our psalm, that's the riddle. It's a riddle. It's, it's almost like a proverb-like psalm. It, it reads like the book of Proverbs. It reads like Ecclesiastes. It presents a riddle. Which are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the good life or the tragic life? Which? Which is it for you? Follow with me as I read the psalm. With all that as introduction. Now, Psalm 49. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Verse 1. Hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together, my mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly. And he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even wise men die The stupid and the senseless alike perish, and they leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses are forever, and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish, and of those who after them approve their words. Selah. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the, sh- and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume so that they have no habitation. But, but God, he will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, and he will receive me. Selah. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, 
When the glory of his house is increased, for when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him, though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They will never see the light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Now, to be sure, this psalm is really difficult to outline. Every commentary is different. And I'm giving you a different outline. So there we go. It's hard to figure out the structure of the psalm because I think it's more like Proverbs. It's, it's like a riddle. It, it, it's like a, a very practical, down-to-earth, let me explain the issues of life so that you hear it, and then we repeat it, and then you hear it again, and we repeat it so that it's marked deeply on your soul. You know, Jesus also addresses all the themes we're going to look at tonight. The certainty of death, the lure of money, the danger of materialism, and God who alone is the giver of redemption. What I hope to do in the outline there is, I mean, I had so many outlines trying to think about how to best preach this and how to best convey the, the meaning. I just want to give you some practical phrases that hopefully will be helpful to kind of get the big picture of the psalm. And we'll go through it together as we walk in the journey through this great, great chapter together. So follow with me in your outline. Let's look at these phrases that we can appropriate to our own lives. Number one, the psalmist wants you and me to listen up. He wants you to listen up. So whatever he's going to talk about, he begins kind of by grabbing us by the shirt collar. Listen, listen up. You know, it, it, it has the tone and the urgency of the fatherly wisdom of Proverbs chapters 1 to 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Pay attention, pay attention, write these on the tablet of your heart. That's Proverbs, and that's the language right here in verses 1 to 4. Pay attention, all of you. I have wisdom to share. Boys and girls, there is much wisdom right here. If you hear and open your heart to what God has tonight, I promise you it will go with you all through life that will point you to the great God and the great giver of redemption, and it will save you a lot of grief. Listen to verse 1. Notice how the psalmist begins. In verse 1, he says, Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, O inhabitants of the world, like everybody. Verse 2, low and high, rich and poor, everyone. Verse 3, the psalmist says, I'm going to speak wisdom. I'm going to give you understanding right here from my mouth. He calls it, verse 4, a proverb. It's the same word for the book of Proverbs, a wise saying to help you with life. And it's called a riddle. At the end of verse 4, a riddle meaning a question. You need to make a choice. How are you going to live? Deuteronomy does this. The Lord sets before you a choice, life or death. Choose life, Deuteronomy 30 says. So the psalmist begins by demanding our full attention. Whatever he's going to say, listen up. In your outline, number two, let's continue on. We must learn theology. We must learn theology. Now, why do I put it like that? Well, because theology affects all of life. 
Everybody has some sort of theology. Even children have a theology. Even an unbeliever has a theology. Even an atheist has a theology. They all have a theology. Everybody has a theology. Everybody has a theology. They have a God. They have some sort of a doctrine of God. But we want to be biblical theologians. We want to know the one true living God and our lives are affected by that. So, let's get some theological principles. Verse 5. Why fear? Why fear? Why should I fear, verse 5, in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes is surrounding me? I mean, why should I live a life of fear? He's going to talk about God. He's going to talk about death. He's going to talk about eternity. He's going to talk about wealth. We live in a world of fear. We live in a world that is strangled by fear. And yet, verse 5, why should I fear? Why should I fear? I, I, I don't need to fear. Look at the next theological point. Verse 6, he's going to reveal the heart of those who love money. Verse 6, even those who trust in their wealth and they boast in the abundance of their riches. Jarrett said it so well earlier. The psalm brings out and the Bible brings out so clear. The problem is not with money. Money is amoral. It's not an issue of money. Having money or not having money is not the issue. The issue is our hearts that love and crave and need money. That's that's the problem. And that's what verse 6 brings out. Even those who trust in their wealth. The Hebrew word for wealth, don't just think money. That's not the Hebrew word. There is money for uh, Hebrew words for that. This is a word that's much, much broader than that. So in verse 6, even those who trust in their power is included. Status is included. Possessions is included. Influence is included. Strength that they have is included. What's the big issue? Don't be afraid of those who are trusting in all of their stuff, in all of their power and in all of their strength. Don't be so concerned about that. There's a lot of that in the world. Don't be concerned with that. The real root cause of all the danger of this is verse 6. They're trusting in their own stuff. It's not that they have it. It's that they're trusting in it. Or it's not that they have the money. It's that the money has a hold on them. They are trusting. It's an ongoing verbal form. It's perpetual. It's habitual. It's grabbed a hold of their lives. They are relying on this. These are people in verse 6 who are living their lives trusting in their stuff. They're boasting in the abundance of their wealth and their riches. Notice verses 7 and 8, another theological point that we need to learn It is absolutely impossible for man to redeem himself. Now, in verse 7, it's much, much more emphatic in the Hebrew. He actually puts two verbs back to back. They're identical. No man can ever, ever redeem his own brother. 
No one could ever redeem his own brother or give to God a ransom for him. It is emphatic. It is absolute. If man is a lover of his money, if man is going to die, if man is temporary, it is impossible for man to redeem himself before God or redeem others. We are all in sin. There's no redeeming from death. Man is unable and incapable and frail and mortal. It's impossible to redeem himself. I think the point here is salvation sense redemption. We'll get to that here in a little bit. So what's the theological point? You can't redeem yourself. No man can redeem himself. Money can't buy salvation. And then verse 9, there's another point that's very important here, the impossibility of delaying death. Verse 9, that man should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. I mean, if a man tried to delay his life, if a man tried to prolong his life, if a man tried to delay death, would it really work? No. Jesus acknowledged this, and he acknowledged that there are people who live for this world. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 26, if if you gain the whole world, I mean, bring all the money, all the pleasures, all the possessions, all the treasures that the whole world could offer and put it right there in your lap. What if you gain the whole world, but it's gone tomorrow when you die? And you lose your soul. What, what, what gain is that? What profit is that? No one, no one could ever have enough money to buy life back when God claims it in death. The point is that you can't buy your own way or anyone else's way out of death. By the way, in your outline there, there's a couple of questions at the bottom of the page that are really, really heart-searching, and they're really good at this point. Just follow with me. Let me read them. I think they're helpful. I was, I was challenged by them. Look at the bottom of the page. You could know if you put in your trust in wealth, if you find too much peace and security by the accounts and holdings. And if you despair when those things decline, like, like despair, like hopeless. You can ask the question, what, what loss in life would be most troubling to me? Would it be my material loss or my spiritual loss? Another question that could be helpful. One could know if he boasts in his riches, if he finds deepest satisfaction in gaining and measuring his wealth, and if he looks for ways to display his riches, perhaps in an ostentatious way, just so others to see. He can ask the question, what am I appropriately proud of? Am I, am I most proud of my material things, or am I most proud of my, my spiritual things? God... God gives you money. He gives you wealth. He gives you possessions. Not just to have and to hoard, but to give and to be generous. We read that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. One of the great principles that we could benefit from and keep excelling in still more is what Randy Alcorn calls radical generosity. 
a way to declare our trust in the Lord and to guard against boasting. Does God need my money? No. It all belongs to him anyway. But Matthew chapter 6, giving money away and storing up treasures in heaven is a way of guarding our own hearts. 1 Timothy chapter 6, it's a way of storing up hope in the future, as we read. Ephesians 4 is an account of, of a man not stealing, but rather he ought to work with his hands, performing what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Great chapters on this are 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. God loves a cheerful, a cheerful giver. That's theology. I mean, that's theology of the psalm. That's what the psalmist is bringing out. Here's the riddle. Let me give you truth that, that you don't trust in your wealth, that you realize that you can't redeem your own soul, that we are temporary beings and we can't delay our death. We can't. So, in your outline, number three, we must live wisely. We must live wisely. Now, according to the book of Ecclesiastes, there's kind of an interesting section in chapter three when Solomon says, the fate of men and the fate of animals is the same. And you think, well, what's that? Us and animals, what's that fate? Well, the answer is death. We all die. And then he says later on in Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 2, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and there's one fate for the wicked. And you think, well, what's that? Death. Death. It is the great equalizer of all mankind. Look in your outline at the two main points that verses 10 to 20 bring out, 10 to 14 bring out. No, 10 to 20 bring out. First, Your wealth cannot stop death. Wealth cannot stop death. Also in your outline, wealth can't depart with you at death. So, verse 10. He gives further explanation in our psalm. He sees that all, even the wise men die, the stupid and the senseless alike perish, and they leave their wealth to others. Well, I guess we all die. We all leave our money behind. We all leave our stuff behind, verse 11. But their inner thought is that my houses are forever and their dwelling places will go on to all generations. I've even called my land after my own family name kind of a thing. Nimrod had his tower. Absalom had his pillar. Alexander the Great had his Alexandria, Egypt. Herod had his Herodium named after himself. But Proverbs 10 verse 7 says the name of the wicked will rot. It will rot. We can't stop death. Verse 12, man in his pomp will not endure. He is like all the beasts that perish. That's actually the chorus of a psalm. Verse 20 is the same thing. Man in his pride will not endure. He is like all the beasts that perish. 
Well, skip down to verse 16. Well, then what happens? Well, in verse 16, he continues on because he tells us, don't be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, you'll go to the generation of your fathers and they will never see the light. I mean, it's like, man, money passes quickly. It flies away. Money is a terrible thing to trust in, isn't it? It deceives, it enslaves, and then it abandons, and it can destroy. Paul says that there are those who make shipwreck of the faith, in part even because of the love of money. Let me give you some practical truths from Proverbs that I think will be helpful for us. Proverbs 3.9, honor the Lord from your wealth. That, that, that's, that's a great principle for all of life. I remember my departing sermon to the young people in our youth group in California was Proverbs 3 for them. And I told them in part, one of the points was honor the Lord from your wealth. Proverbs 13, verse 7, the one who pretends to be rich, but he has nothing. I mean, he, he pretends to be rich. He, he wants to be seen. He wants to flaunt what he has, but he has nothing. Proverbs 18, 11, the rich man's wealth is his strong city, meaning that's all he has to lean on is his wealth. Proverbs 23, verse 4, that's what Jarrett read earlier, don't weary yourself to gain wealth. Proverbs 28, 22, a man with an evil or a bad eye runs after his wealth. Jesus, I mean, just so clearly said in Luke chapter 16, you cannot serve or worship both God and money. So there are some heroes of mine. They're found in Luke chapter 8, verse 3. It's kind of one of those verses that you think, why is that there? It talks about how there were women who supported Jesus out of their own private means. What a great verse. That in his ministry, travels and food and lodging and all that he had, there were some women who provided for Jesus. According to Matthew 2 verse 11, the wise men, they came and they worshiped Jesus and they gave him gifts of gold. And frankincense and myrrh. What is so dangerous, what is so dangerous that we need to hear about the love of money, follow with me. Look at verse 13 and 14 of our psalm. Verse 13, this is the way of those who are foolish. What's that? The love of money, trusting in your wealth. And, and after those... And of those who after them approve their words, verse 14, like sheep who are appointed for Sheol, death will be their shepherd. What? What does that mean? That means that it's like death gathers them into their fold at the end of the day. There's no escape. God isn't their shepherd. Death is their shepherd. What's, what's the... 
What's the psalm writer saying here? Live wisely. Money cannot stop death, and you cannot take it with you when you die. But, Randy Alcorn says, you can send it on ahead from Matthew chapter 6. Store up treasures in heaven. So what do we do? I mean, that, that, that's a great psalm right there. We need that. We hear that. We benefit from that. So what do we do now? Look in your outline at number four. Look eternally. I love how God puts the wealth discussion here in the framework of eternity. Verse 15. This is one of those but God portions of the Bible. Here's all the bad news, the bad news, the bad news, but God. Verse 15, but God, he will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. Don't, don't worry about those who are making or flaunting or trusting in or controlled by their money. Don't let that consume you. Rather, remember that it is God who redeems your soul from the power of the grave. If you trust in money, death will be your shepherd, but trusting in God, he, the great redeemer, is your shepherd. Let's talk about verse 15 for a minute. It points us, I think, to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Look in your outline, you see here, redemption's hope. In the Hebrew language, the verb is a clear hope in the future, Verse 15, God will surely redeem my soul. He will. There's a confidence here. I know that my Redeemer will deliver me. Second, not only do we have redemption's hope, we have redemption's achiever. Well, if money can't save, if money can't prolong my life, if money can't give me happiness, if all the things of this world can't really give me meaning, where is it found? Verse 15, God. It's found in God. God is the one who redeems my soul. It's found in God. Third, we see redemption security. God is the one who redeems me from the power of of the grave. I think probably a rendition would be hell. God redeems me from hell. This is probably what 1 Peter chapter 1 is alluding to. When in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, but you have been redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We have a redeemer. Romans 3.24, there is redemption found in Christ. Why, why this? In the middle of a psalm about wealth and, and God and life and death and eternity. And, and why this verse? Why is it here? To show us something that is secure and unfailing. It's to show us where you can have hope in this world when everything that you could ever live for could have wings and fly away. Except for the living Redeemer. This Redeemer is true, reliable, and sure, 
and faithful. And by the way, as if it couldn't get any better, look at the end of verse 15. God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he will take me. Well, if we were looking at our Hebrew Bibles, you in your mind would go back to Genesis 5.24. It's the exact same word, exact same meaning. Enoch walked with God and then he was not, for God took him. God instantly received him to himself. This is the purpose of redemption, for God to take us to heaven. This is theology of the afterlife at its best in the Old Testament. Here's the writer saying, I know that God, my Redeemer, will take me to heaven, just like he took Enoch. And, and my hope is not in money. My hope is not in wealth. My hope is not in my possessions. My hope is not in this world. My hope is in my Redeemer. Do you hear that? That's the contrast. And that's what the psalmist wants you and me to hear. It's like Ephesians 4, verse 30. We have been sealed for the day of redemption. What hope? What hope that is. So, work hard. Everything you have, everything you make, everything you do is all of God's grace. Everything you possess is really not yours, it's God's. You're his money manager. So, in your life, remember to focus and refocus and reorient your heart on this Redeemer. On the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. I've not been redeemed with perishable things, but we've been bought by the blood of Christ. That is the hope of the Christian. That is the hope that we have. I want to end by telling you a true story of a, a man who is called to the bedside of, a, of an old man. He was about to die. He was on his last journey of life. And yet the man was known by his family as a hoarder, hoarded lots of money, lots of treasures, lots of possessions. And he called for the preacher of the town to come to his home. He knew he was going to die. And he said, I want the preacher to come to my, to my home. I want him to pray for my soul. The preacher comes. The preacher goes into the room where that old and dying man was. He said, may I preacher said, may I take your hand? And the man said, no. And they talked about life after life. Finally, the preacher said to the old dying man, what, what, are, you, what are you trusting in? What, what are you really trusting in? And the man said, I must tell you, I must confess, even at this very moment, I'm not holding your hand because under the sheets, my hands are clutching onto the keys of the treasure cabinet of all of my possessions. I can't let it go. He feared that his money would be taken away from him when he died. That's why he wouldn't take the preacher's hand when the preacher wanted to pay for, uh, pray for him. And, and so he held on to his money. He was holding on to it. He wouldn't let it go. What's the lesson for us? Relax your grip on the perishing things of this world. 
and place your hand in the safe, the safe security of the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want death to be our shepherd, do we? Boys and girls, you don't want death to be your shepherd. You don't want to be a lovey, a money lover and a money pursuer so that it grabs a hold of your heart and your life. You want to love and pursue the Lord Jesus. Let him be your good shepherd, your chief shepherd to guide you through life. If you look on the page on your outline, there are a couple of lines there from one of my favorite hymns. We can't